0: Thing, 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 podcast. podcast. Maniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and we're on the road to Dragon Con, and I gotta tell you, uh, things are getting jam-packed. we got a lot of extra minicasts planned over the next couple of weeks. I have had to push what was going to be the August Needless commentary uh, for the film Heavy Metal. I've had to push that back to September because I just don't have enough slots for an August commentary and for all the other content that is directly DragonCon related that has to go up. I mean, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if I put the interview with Mr. Bo Brown of the puppetry track up in September. Now, would it? No, I wouldn't. So that's where we're at, as I've got a ton of content headed your way in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be great, and today is a very special episode that was set up for me uh, by the previously mentioned Mr. Bo Brown, the director of the puppetry track. This is an interview with Rick Goldschmidt, who will be a guest at DragonCon this year. He is the historian for Rankin Bass Productions. Now, You hear Rankin-Bass, and you probably think of the classic Christmas specials, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Year Without a Santa Claus, uh, Frosty the Snowman. Sure, but there is so much more to Rankin-Bass Productions than just those things. Uh, Thundercats and Silverhawks, just to name a couple, that may not immediately jump into your head. That's right, and especially timely, considering the fact that Super 7 has just announced they are... At long last, relaunching the Thundercats Classics line. And and honestly, I'm not even sure if they're calling it that. But it's the the 7-inch scale Thundercats figures that Mattel started years ago at this point. Uh, Super 7 is taking them back up. I think they look fantastic. Uh, I totally agree with their first wave choices because you've got to give people who didn't jump on the first time around because they didn't believe Mattel was ever actually going to finish the collection. I'm, I'm raising my hand right now because that was me. Uh, I, I grew up with Thundercats. I love Thundercats. Uh, the designs are great. I, I just, it's a great franchise. I can't say it's one of my favorite 80s franchises but it's it's definitely one that's up there for me. I bought Funko's Savage World Thundercats because I just wanted some kind of Thundercats figures. Uh, and and I, I thought those would last a little bit longer, but I don't know that that's going to happen. You know how Funko likes to sort of dip their toe in and jump back out. But uh, Super 7, I fully believe because of the way they produce their toys and because of the quality that they put into those toys, I think they're going to get all of the Thundercats out that they plan to get out. Uh, the head of the company has already said they have 16 more figures planned and I, th- I think these things are going to happen because e- even though there's some naysayers online that aren't particularly happy about this first wave uh, I think that it's going to do well because it's Super 7, because of the quality uh, that, that we've come to expect from Super 7 and yeah there have been a couple of bumps but I think they've got their feet fully under them now So I'm excited about Thundercats, uh, which, again, to bring it back, is a Rankin Bass production. Uh, And we are going to be talking to Mr. Goldschmidt today about everything Rankin Bass. It's a fantastic interview, and I can't thank Mr. Bo Brown enough for giving me the opportunity to talk to this gentleman who is aware of so much of the history of such an integral production of pop culture is Rankin bass production so this is awesome and he's going to be at dragon con so you can see him talk live there are a couple of subjects we really didn't get into too much uh because he's he's got to save stuff for dragon con so here you get the opportunity to sort of get to know rick a little bit and have an idea of what's going to be in store for you live at dragon con in just a couple of weeks uh okay so great episode today. I've got a couple other things I've got to cover before we get into the meat of the episode, and that is the interview with Mr. Goldschmidt. Uh, t-shirts are available. Yes, I, I said I'd never do it again, but I've done it again because i found a reasonable way to have T-shirts produced. If you go to needlessthings.storeenvy.com you can purchase a Needless Commentary Team T-shirt featuring gorgeous art by our friend Selena Balls. Uh, This is the Needless commentary team uh, as the heads of a Tiamat dragon, a five-headed dragon. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, Go to needlessthings.storeenvy.com. You can check it out right now. You can also see the pictures, uh, Needless Things podcast on Instagram, Phantom Troublemaker on Instagram, on Twitter, all the social medias. I put this picture up everywhere. Uh, It's currently the cover. Uh, on my Facebook page. It's gorgeous. It's the most wonderful art I've ever been involved with. Uh, And please go buy the shirt. Uh, They're very reasonably priced. They're available in, I think, 14 different sizes and fits. I have men's and women's shirts available. Uh, We have men's all the way up to 5XL. Uh, We have women's up to 2XL because it's as big as they got. Uh, And I say men's, you know, I mean unisex. And women's, you know, I mean cut uh like a female body but if you're a dude and you want to wear a women's shirt that's cool everything goes it's fine uh and available in five different colors the five colors of the tiamat dragon uh yellow green blue red and black so go pick out your color go pick out your size and order your needless commentary shirt they're gorgeous i'm very proud of them and uh, I want to see people wearing these things because they're they're just incredible. And and I will tell you guys this: I have priced these at the bare bare minimum. My interest is in getting these shirts onto people, not in making money. Uh, so when you see the price on these shirts, that is that is the absolute like bottom price I could go with on these things. So just know I want. These shirts on people—that's my interest. I'm not even trying to make a buck here. I just love this art, uh, and I, I want our fans to have these shirts. They're gorgeous, and also please do visit Selena. Uh, she, her, her—the biggest thing you can do is go to Patreon.com. Look for the Briar Crow. That is her Patreon page. That way, you can help fund her as an artist. I paid for this design. I, uh, th- this was not a freebie. This was not a gimme i specifically wanted her to do this specific picture uh, i had this in my head and i knew she was the one to do it and she did so go to patreon.com slash the briar crow back her there are several different uh levels you know how patreon works or at least i will some of you do a few of you do because i know there were like you know five people that backed mine a few years ago before i gave up on that uh but you want to you want to back artists And you should also visit the Briar Crow on Instagram and Twitter just to follow along with everything Selena does. She's a fantastic visual artist. Uh, She has a very specific style that, like I said, when I envisioned this dragon, it was in her style. I knew she was the one to get it done, and she did. So go to needlessthings.storeenvy.com. Get yourself a t-shirt, and uh, if I see you wearing one of these t-shirts uh anywhere i will uh i'll I'll have a little a little something special for you and and down the road i have a big contest with a unique singular prize that will be available but i haven't quite decided how we're going to go about that yet so there you go needless things t-shirts available now Uh, Very reasonably priced, in my opinion, because I saw behind the scenes and I know uh, the difference between what they cost and what we're selling them for. Uh, Okay. Now, I am going to... Let's see here. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, I'm not going to announce my full schedule yet because I've already rambled too long in an introduction. Uh, The full Needless Things Dragon Con schedule obviously will be available on NeedlessThingsPodcast.com next week. And in the Needle or needless things app no we're not there yet it will be available in the dragon con app whenever that thing is available uh so we'll we'll be keeping you posted on everything that's going on with the whole needless things family at DragonCon. Uh, i'm going to put over a few episodes Today, earlier today, I conducted an interview with Beth Giles, the director of the Silk Road Track at DragonCon. It was a great conversation. That's going to be a minicast that goes up next week. Uh, I have an interview with Robert Jimenez, who is a talented artist in the realm of tiki and weird stuff. That is going to be going up on Monday. I am talking in just a few hours here to Derek and Carol. Uh, if you remember last year we combined the horror track and the urban fantasy track into one episode purely out of necessity because I just don't have any more slots for dragon. I might have to start Dragon con episodes earlier next year. I'm gonna make a note. right now I'm gonna take out my trusty purple and green pen. that's a shoot. this is legit a purple and green pen. Next year start dragon. Earlier, all right. did you hear that? That's the click of my purple and green pen. Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, I just there's there's no time, you guys. There's no more time. Uh, so Derek and Carol are going to be on next week's episode of the podcast, and then I am going to meet Mr. Bo Brown live and in person in Brown Town, uh, in Broughton Abbey, I guess it is now, uh, to talk about the puppetry track and hopefully squeeze in a little mini cast for to put up later on about masters of the universe stuff from san diego comic con because there's actually a lot to talk about so there you go lots going on i appreciate your patience waiting for the next commentary uh it, it's just it's going to have to be next month you guys there, there's no way around it because there's just too much good stuff going on before dragon con so now it's time to sit back relax and uh enjoy reminiscing over your childhood memories, and Rick Goldschmidt's life uh, with this fantastic interview about Rankin Bass Productions. All right, Phantomaniacs, our special guest on the road to Dragon Con today is Mr. Rick Goldschmidt, who is the official historian for Rankin Bass Productions. Rick, welcome to the Needless Things Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I'm very excited to have you here because, like basically everybody in the world at this point, uh, I grew up with Rankin Bass with the seasonal specials obviously particularly with the christmas specials uh so i i think they have this magical sort of unassailable status at this point where they're just cultural touchstones for everyone but for you uh what what was your first awareness of rankin bass
1: well uh going back to when the shows were first airing um, basically I watched them with my family in the late 60s early 70s um, primarily and my mom always made sure that we were aware that they were on you know Frosty and Rudolph and so forth and um, I always loved them because they to me they were part of the holidays they were explains what Santa is and you know, what the holidays are all about. So they were just, they became such a part of the holidays for me. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, I had no idea that I would be talking about the history of the programs. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I, that wasn't what I set out to do. <laughs> I was more of an artist. And uh, that's, in fact, what I got my degree in. But after I got out of college, um, I emulated the work of Jack Davis and Paul Coker Jr. out of Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I also talked to Mort Drucker and um, some other artists that I, you know, I was working in the style of that. In fact, I even submitted some art to Mad Magazine right out of college that they considered for for covers so jack davis and paul coker became good friends and i realized that they had designed all the rank and bass shows and films in particular mad monster party was jack davis completely he designed the whole movie so i said what happened to those guys you know like Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass, to me, they're like Walt Disney and Hanna and Barbera and the Warner Brothers cartoon animators. What happened to Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass? And they said, oh, uh, we still do work for, for Arthur Rankin occasionally. And I said, well, give me his number. I'll, I'll call him up. And I called him up and I just said, There should be a book, and and I'll do it. And Arthur Rankin was like, okay, send me two chapters. So I sent him two chapters, and he liked it. And the next thing I knew, I got a little tape in the mail from Arthur of his life story. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it just really, it was almost like a calling, you know? Like, I didn't set out to be an author or historian or or anything like that but there was a void and it really needed to be done and I figured well I can kind of tie in my art background into this and I'll get this book done and see what happens and and that's what I did and I became very close friends with Arthur Rankin Jr. and all of the people that worked on the specials Maury Laws and Romeo Muller's brother because Romeo had passed away. He was the writer of all the, the specials. And um, there were designers that worked on the shows like Tony Peters designed Rudolph and Jack Davis, of course, from the Atlanta area. I was very close friends with him. and And Paul Coker is still doing things for me to this day and he's in his early 90s so it's just been a sort of a calling and um, I really enjoy doing it because the shows are so good I mean they did so many great shows you know the Jackson 5 show and Smokey the Bear show they even did Thundercats and Silverhawks and and The generation uh, from the mid-80s knows all that stuff. And The Hobbit and uh, Return to the King. Um, I actually went to Sundance one year because I helped a documentary filmmaker uh, finish his film about all the Tolkien books and movies, and Rankin-Bass was a big part of that. So uh, that was another whole deal that I got involved with. Because of what I do, and it—it's just—it's a lot of fun being an artist. You know, I—I I have a deep appreciation for the artistry of Rankin Bass, and and I'm also a musician. And Maury Laws was probably the best scorer of animated uh, music of anybody. Um, he's very underrated, in my opinion.
0: Well, looking at Because my first experience was the stop-motion specials that, as you said, you know, to me, they were mythology. They told me about Santa Claus. They explained the story to me. Uh, They explained Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And growing up, you know, I took those as seriously as any, you know, textbook that I would look at (laughs) later on in school. And it's amazing because I think when you're a kid – There's a certain amount of resistance to things that your parents may be fond of. Like when you're very, very young, you sort of go along with it. But as you get older, you want to develop your own taste and find your own things. And the the things that your parents love maybe seem a little quaint. Uh, But to me, those specials have this incredible timelessness and universal appeal and I can't quite put my finger on why.
1: Well, there's a, there is a long shelf life to them. Um, in fact, this year is Frosty's 50th anniversary, and it's Rudolph's 55th. And Frosty's been on television on the same network, CBS, for 50 years. Um, it's the only television special that hasn't jumped networks. <laughs> for 50 years how does that Char- Um I don't know It's, it's CBS just hung on to it we're not uh, letting you Frosty know, they, go they used to show a Charlie Brown Christmas but it moved from CBS to ABC and Rudolph was originally on NBC and then that switched to CBS I mean all of the major holiday specials have jumped networks except for Frosty and um, this year I worked um, not only on a book on Frosty but the US postal stamps are coming out for Christmas and I worked on those as I did the Rudolph stamps five years ago so the 50th anniversary is always a big celebration when it comes to the Rankin Bass specials And then Rankin Bass last year was featured in a a long marathon on AMC, which really introduced uh, the Rankin Bass specials to a whole new audience. So even though they're handed down generation to generation by parents and grandparents, um, they still have a long shelf life because – the characters are so great, you know. You got the Heat Miser and Snow Miser in the Year Without a Santa Claus, and I don't think any two characters get shared more on Facebook than those. Uh, you know, when it gets hot or when it gets cold, uh, that's all you see are the Heat Miser and Snow Miser all over the place. So,
0: yeah, the, those are two of. It's <laughs> funny and talking about specials that feature you know, characters as well-known as as Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and yet these two that I believe are original
1: are some of the most iconic. Right, right. A lot of it has to do with the writing. Uh, Romeo Muller was a genius, and he didn't write shows for kids. He wrote shows for the whole entire family, and it's much more satisfying to have the villain reform, which he did in almost every special, except for the Burgermeister, Meisterburger, in Santa Claus is Coming to Town. His picture just kind of fell off the wall. <laughs> but uh, but the bumble and, and characters like that, they always get reformed at the end. And Andrew Stanton from Pixar. I don't think he's any longer with Pixar, but he won the Academy Award for Finding Nemo and Wall E, and he wrote the afterword in my Rudolph book, and he understood um, the writing style of Romeo Muller, and you know, and he even said that it was a much more satisfying thing to have the villains be reformed rather than just kill them off you know which is yes. a mistake a lot of writers make and uh, you know that gives it longevity too and just the fact that he wasn't writing down to kids, he was writing stuff that makes sense to adults and older adults too you, you can watch these things over and over and over again and not really get sick of them. You know,
0: because it's because it's intelligent. The stories flow and make sense. The characters are understandable. None of it. None of it feels like nonsten- nonsense. It all feels like a narrative.
1: And it's also heartwarming. And yes. I think a lot of entertainment of today misses that. Misses the charm and the the heart of of this type of writing. And the. They don't quite understand that that's a component of it you know and and a lot of times I get asked about that and when I bring that up it seems so elementary um, you know that it has this component of heart but really if you look at a lot of entertainment today especially you know they're trying to make superheroes into evil heroes you know and and have this kind of edge to them, and I don't know, I just, I always loved the superheroes the way they were, where they they were, they stood for something, you know, and...
0: Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cynicism in entertainment today, and I think that... Right. ...that there is none of that with most of Rankin-Bass productions, honestly, they're never... They're never kind of winking at the camera and going, "Look how corny this guy is." They take their characters very seriously um, and they there's there's a deep emotional core, and there's no attempt to 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 have that sort of like you said, that edgy coolness. It's very sincere, and I think that's important
1: right, right and And the puppetry part of it is amazing to me. It was all done in Japan and it was a stop-motion art form that the Japanese really had a good handle on, and Arthur Rankin went down there in the late 50s and and discovered that they were super talented at stop-motion and decided to do the new Adventures of Pinocchio there, which ultimately led to Rudolph. And if you look at the Rankin-Bash shows, they're not just puppets, and... They don't just use star power for the sake of putting Fred Astaire's name on the show or uh, Burl Ives. They really brought personality to the art form that wasn't there before. Um, you know, you had puppets, uh, puppet tunes. You had George Powell. You had a lot of different people working in this stop motion art form, but Rankin Bass brought personality and they did that with stars that had great voices and warm personalities like Burl Ives and Boris Karloff and Phyllis Diller and just a whole host of great voices that were good for animation. In fact, Mickey Rooney as Santa Claus is probably the best choice you could make for Santa, Santa Claus because he was very animated. Um, and that's something today, you know, when you see, you know, the Lion King come out with Beyonce and I don't know who else, they, Seth Rogen and, and all these people, their voices aren't really that animatable. They're not that recognizable and they're not that good for animation. They're just star power. Well, I think there's and a... I
0: can- there's a big big difference between actors and voice actors right and I I also think that you know I wonder if maybe the proximity to radio kind of made a difference in the way things were done back then because maybe some of these actors still had experience with being on radio and with being voices in just voices
1: Yep, and that's that's uh, you hit a, a nail right on the head because for Rudolph they used an all Canadian um voice cast except for Burl Lives and they all came out of uh, radio in Canada. And Canada radio lasted a little bit longer than it did here in the US. So, these actors were able to conjure up their characters without really even seeing the animation or or even the very much in the way of preliminary drawings or storyboards um, so they were pretty amazing in the way that they captured you know that the characters and and that's a big part of why people love. The Rankin Bass shows, the Rudolph, and, 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 you know, they, they actually mixed the great, uh, stars that had good voices for animation with great voice actors, uh, you know, like Paul Fries and June Foray. Uh, they popped up in a lot of them. And, uh, Alan Swift, <laughs> he was a great, um, Voice actor. He he actually worked on the Howdy Doody show and did a lot of the puppets, um, and did a lot of animated characters like Simon Bar Sinister in the Underdog show and so forth. So that's another thing. Um, back then, the Rankin Bass shows pulled from uh, a large talent base that seems to be disappearing uh, these days because. Frankly, these people were working in the business for, you know, twenty or thirty, some of them forty years uh, prior. So I mean, they had experience and talent that you you just don't see that uh, very much today. You know, it's more about <laughs> you know who's the 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 one that's getting talked about on social media, right? The flavor the most. of the week, right. These people had such talent. It's, and it shows, you know, you, you, all you have to, and, and of course that's what I do as a historian. I look at all the components and try to figure out why these things are still going 50 years later. And it's, it's not hard to figure out because in every facet of the production, you can see that people were talented
0: so let's go back before we because I I do want to sort of briefly discuss uh, some of the 80s cartoons but, but let's go back to was Rudolph the first stop motion production
1: well it was the first television special that they did in Animagic which is what their form of stop motion was known as um, they did a series called "The New Adventures of Pinocchio" in the same style in nineteen sixty and that was sent out to local kids shows across the country in Chicago near me. It was on WGN television on the Garfield Goose show. so um, Rudolph really became their uh, their big break. You know, in the business, everybody saw it. Everybody loved it, um, and their phones started ringing off the hook. And that's how they got a movie deal right away with um, Joseph E. Levine. They landed a three-picture deal, which included Mad Monster Party, one of my favorite movies, and also the one that inspired Nightmare Before Christmas the most. So. It really opened the doors for Rankin Bass and they never looked back after that they did like 36 specials and uh, about a dozen Saturday morning cartoon shows and uh, they even did live action movies like King Kong Escapes and the Bermuda Depths and so forth so they have a large body of work that um, is very important in the world of entertainment, in my opinion. And um, I wrote a book called "The Enchanted World of Rankin Bass" that came out originally in '97, and now it's a 412-page book. And when you look at it, you think, "Oh my God, they did all these shows in you know that 30-year uh, time period." It's it's just amazing.
0: Well, and what's another thing that's so remarkable is as you said in so many different mediums. You know, when when we uh you know when I, when I was a kid thinking of Rankin Bass, the, the stop motion, the the specials, that's what come to mind, but then later on as you said ThunderCats and SilverHawks, which were a huge part of my childhood, that gets folded into what they've done. And then there's more like it's amazing how many different things they got into and weren't you know a lot of well-known production companies were sort of niche uh especially now you kind of find one thing you're good at and you stick with it but back then you had uh well and filmation is another example that had animation and live action and lots of different production styles and it's interesting to me that it seems like in that era there was a lot more uh sort of experimentation and and drive maybe to find different things to do and find out what these creators could be successful with?
1: Definitely. Um, I know that Arthur Rankin ultimately wanted to become a a feature filmmaker and make a movie like Gone with the Wind (laughs) is what his goal was. And he began to do that a little bit in the 70s when ABC had a Friday night movie of the week and hired Rankin Bass to do several movies the budgets weren't very big on them, so the movies aren't that great Uh, they've become kind of cult classics but ultimately that was his goal and um, later in life when I came along and started looking back at his body of work I think he realized that Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus is coming to town and the little drummer boy they're going to long outlive him and that's what he was most proud of is the fact that these shows became so much a part of Americana that he did create something on the level of The Wizard of Oz and and, uh, Gone with the Wind it just happens to be christmas specials that everybody watches every year and he was happy with that i think um ultimately
0: yeah i mean it's it's a heck of a legacy Uh, so few creators have reached that level of respect and recognition that those specials have that every year that goes by you go to the store you see them there on the dvds you see a new edition every year you see them in blu-ray like it it's they're perpetual and it's it's amazing
1: yep and then and then the merchandising really didn't start until after my book came out um that's when companies started realizing that oh there's a market for you know toys and christmas decorations too and they actually got that idea from my first book and created beanbag dolls for cvs pharmacies i've got
0: them i've got them all
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then i helped design a lot of figurines for unesco um some of those were the best that came out you know they did a rudolph line they did a here comes peter cottontail line and um and then I started working on uh, some DVD releases like the Mad Monster Party and the Daydreamer and and different things, and even soundtracks. Um, I worked on the Warner Brothers Rhino release of uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Frosty, which is out of print now, but it <laughs> goes for a fortune. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of different projects that have come out of... Uh, you know, my first book, and now I've got six books, and uh, it just keeps going, you know, it never it never slows down, so that's a good thing.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about Mad Monster Party, because that's, now, now as an adult, that's one of my favorite productions, uh, It's it's so different from everything, you know, it's immediately recognizable, but I remember the first time that I saw it, and I was I mean, I might have been 15, 16 years old by the time that one sort of came into my awareness because it's it's not a television special. It's not something that gets aired every year. It's sort of something somebody has to tell you about or you have to see it, you know, on the shelf in Blockbuster or whatever the case may be. <laughs> uh, well, granted, that's not going to happen anymore, but you know what I mean. Uh, right. And it was so... I'm a huge horror fan. I love horror movies. My grandmother introduced me to the old Hammer horror movies when I was a kid. And then, you know, the Universal Monsters. So Mad Monster Party was this amazing uh, mash-up combination of the horror that I love and the holiday-style specials that I love... And it just blew my mind when I discovered this thing and, and, and that it was so well executed and so perfectly understood, all of the tropes and everything. How, how did this project come about?
1: Well, um, it was part of that movie deal that they landed with Joseph E. Levine uh, just after Rudolph in the early part of 65 and um, Arthur Rankin knew that he wanted to do something with Halloween, and it became this movie, which it was called originally The Monster Rally, and then The Monster Movie. It was a couple different things before it actually became Mad Monster Party with the question mark uh, when they brought Harvey Kurtzman in, from mad magazine to punch up the script a little bit that len karobkin wrote and i'm actually doing uh one of my panels at dragon con on mad monster party because i wrote a book about it i also attended events on the west coast uh, one at van eaton galleries we had a mad monster party art show and and I also appeared at the Shag store, my friend Shag
0: oh, yeah, yeah. who's
1: a famous artist. Yes. He did a, a a beautiful print that that we got the licensing on and, and I signed at his store. So it, it really has a broad appeal and it's inspirational to a lot of artists and animators because like you said it brings in all of the classic monsters that were in the Universal Monster movies and in even in the Hammer films. And they're slightly different because of the Jack Davis style. And um, it's a very appealing film. It's not something that... Um, holds a kid's attention that well for i don't know if it's 90 minutes or whatever because there are some parts in it where they fleshed it out and, and it's a little boring in parts for for small kids but i always put it on at halloween and uh, it's a big part of uh, of the holiday for me and i think it's that way for a lot of people too and it it's very cool to see the monsters in the Rankin Bass style and uh there's some great scenes in the movie and and uh a lot of talented people were involved. I love the music because Maury Law's sort of parodied um the James Bond style, um Goldfinger in particular yes, with yes. the the theme and then he used a lot of jazz which I really like the way the jazz music fits into the movie and there's just a lot to like you know with Mad Monster Party and like I said it it inspired uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and Tim Burton's uh, work because he was a big Vincent Price fan first of all and I think he developed his style from Vincent Price and Here Comes Peter Cottontail. He's very goth in that. Yes. Wearing yes. black gloves and black leather and all that. Um, and I think it just expanded from Mad Monster Party and what Tim Burton wanted to do. And I know Henry Selleck is a big fan of the movie. So it really inspired a lot of people.
0: Well, it's just that making taking these sort of macabre characters and giving them almost mundane things to deal with. Like, we see that they just have lives. Like, it's all, there's a lot of comedy and there's a lot of fun, but it's treating them, again, it's treating them as characters and, right. and not just as boogeymen.
1: <laughs> right, right. And it it's really a great way to introduce your kids to the... Um, the monster world you know um, I think the closest movie to Mad Monster Party is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein
0: yes you know, yeah, which working is still in the, awesome
1: yeah so it's it's a very similar film and it has a similar following too and um, I bring masks and I'll bring them to, to Dragon Con um, that were made from the movie and um in fact i just appeared on me tv's collector's call and one of the items that we featured on the tv show was my mad monster party uh fork and spoon set that arthur rankin gave me that the puppet makers made for him the spoon is frankenstein and the fork is dracula oh that's fantastic. <laughs> So they're a one-of-a-kind, and, and that was one of the featured items on, on the television show. So, I mean, it, it just what's cooler than having all the classic movie monsters in puppet form in a cool movie like that, you know?
0: Well, and for the uh, listeners, uh, you, you mentioned the music, the soundtrack, uh, and I do want to point something out for our listeners that Waxwork Records, which I'm a huge fan of, of their releases, their productions, uh, released the soundtrack on vinyl. I think it was last year, maybe?
1: Right, and right. It's um,
0: it's incredible. It's gorgeous packaging, and it sounds absolutely amazing.
1: Right. I was the one that actually found the soundtrack um, through Maury Laws in the 1990s. Because in the movie, it says that RCA Victor was releasing it on vinyl back then, Mm -hmm. but it never came out, and Maury Laws had an acetate of it with the correct order, uh, uh, you know, the way it was supposed to be released by RCA, and we put it out on CD back in, like, 1998, and we... Released it at the San Diego Comic-Con that I appeared at, and I was signing books there. And I know, like, the appeal that soundtrack had um, to a lot of the West Coast fans, because we sold a lot of CDs there. Oh, I'm sure. And I I wrote the liner notes for the CD, and in fact, I even brought them to Phyllis Stiller um, back then. I knew her agent and yeah so it was it was a thrill to finally get that soundtrack out because it had sat in Maury Laws' home for 20-30 years before I even inquired about it so it was kind of cool.
0: Well, just there, that's just a little teaser of Mad Monster Party that uh, everybody will be able to hear more about at Dragon Con on the actual panel. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about The Last Unicorn as well, another huge, famously known production uh, that people may not necessarily associate with Rankin-Bass Productions. Uh, what what can you tell us about
1: that? Well, um that was a project that came about uh, the book was from Peter S. Beagle who I'm still in contact with through Facebook um, he had some issues recently with uh, with his agent um, but <laughs> um, the movie itself I remember when it came out and I remember seeing it on Siskel and Ebert and both of them giving it a thumbs up and um, I mean, Christopher Lee is in the movie with Mia Farrow and Jeff Bridges, and I mean, it's a star-studded cast. And uh, they got America uh, to to sing the songs, and um, Jimmy Webb wrote the music. I mean, it was a big production, and um, it has a huge following. And it's been out; it's been released on. Blu ray a few times now. Um, so it's one of their, you know, very popular um, films. I think that one did better than actually than most of their theatrical releases. Well, as I far remember. As stuff is. Uh,
0: I remember my mother taking me to see that in the theater. I would have been probably five or six years old. And, <laughs> uh, you know, even. I knew it was something different. It's uh, first of all, it's devastating. I mean, it's it's a heartbreaking uh, film to a little kid. But as you get older, you appreciate again the storytelling, um, the fact that the material is being taken seriously, and that it's being presented as as a you know a dramatic thing. And it's not they didn't look at it as just a cartoon, right?
1: Uh,
0: how and because. How did it the decision was, come about to make that a feature what was uh what was the thought process in that one was it was it just re- did somebody recognize the book as sort of a special work
1: well um one of the panels I'm doing at Dragon con is uh, with the fantasy um
0: oh okay so tra- we've got a last <laughs> unicorn panel coming too
1: <laughs> well it kind of fits in with um where they went with The Hobbit. You know, uh, The Hobbit was, I think that was 76, if I'm not mistaken, or 77 when it actually aired. And, you know, I can remember back then, I didn't read the the Tolkien books. Some of my friends did. And there was a buzz about that being on TV. Like, that was the first time you were going to see what the characters look like that you read about and that was a huge success, so big that they did a sequel you know, Return of the King which wasn't as good as The Hobbit but they started delving in that direction from The Hobbit and they went and they did The Flight of Dragons which is a very different style uh, special and um, then they did the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus was their last stop motion special and that was based on a El Frank Baum book so the the last unicorn sort of fits in with all of those productions in that it went the fantasy way which was very popular at that time yes you know especially with Star Star Wars coming out in seventy six seventy seven it you know a lot of fandom started going in that direction, and Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass realized that, and they hired artists that worked in that style and started looking for books that were written in that style and That's ultimately what happened, how they got into doing. You know, the last unicorn and a few other things at that time. They did the wind in the willows too in, I think it was 85, which reminds me of that, that genre as well. So um, they, that's the thing you gotta hand to Arthur Rankin and, and Jules Bass is they were willing to change. They weren't just working in that one style that made them famous they were willing to investigate other styles and work with other people and um, that's why they were so successful Um, they didn't really just stick to one style or one way of storing storytelling and i think that you got to really give them a hand for doing that because you know, you weren't seeing that from other creators um, during that period. You know, if they did one style of animation, they stuck to that. And Rankin-Bass were kind of pioneers, I think, in that they would adapt to what was popular and, uh, and go in different directions.
0: Well, and I think that's one of the things that I admire most uh, so much about them as creators – is they do seem to have that spirit of look at that let's try that let's see if we can do that I I, I love that I love that a lot they didn't just sit there with their comfortable uh, way of doing things they were interested in expanding and uh, you know and part of that was we'll we'll get back to them now uh, things like Silverhawks and Thundercats that were very much part of the way that cartoons were in the 80s. You can look at things like He-Man or uh, Masters of the Universe. You can look at G.I. Joe, Transformers. Uh, So many of the 80s cartoons that are that action-adventure fantasy format, and yet those do, to a certain extent, uh, stand out from the 80s cartoons because, again, you have these sort of ongoing morality plays. Now you have to do them for 65 episodes a year, but... (laughs) It's, uh, there was still that, that style and that interest in telling, telling these stories.
1: Right, right. And, um, when I look at the, uh, the Silverhawks and Thundercats, um, folders that were in the archives, um, there was an emphasis on morality, um, and, in fact, there were even some psychologists and psychiatrists that were involved in the development of the show. And that might have come from the networks, where they didn't want, like, too much violence anymore in sure, uh, sure. Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> That's but, why
0: He-Man threw rocks at people instead of hitting him with his sword.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. and uh, And then as an offshoot from Thundercats and Silverhawks, it really uh, went wild in the merchandising uh, world, where they had the action figures and the vehicles and things like that, Um, where so much so shows that came along later were based on toys. You know? And were marketed just to sell toys, but I don't think that's how Thundercats and Silverhawks started out, I think it just became that um, as it went along, and and then shows were made to sell toys (laughs) after that, Um, but there's a, you know, there was a, a lot of quality that went into those Saturday morning shows, and In fact, they've been talking about doing uh, feature films on, at least on Thundercats. And um, I know Leonardo DiCaprio is a big fan of Thundercats. And in fact, I think he even uh, bought a lot of the toys or had a friend of mine buying toys for him. Um, So it's kind of interesting.
0: I think there's a huge demand for Thundercats now because so many. you know, people around my age now we have disposable income, and we love the things that we loved when we were kids, and that's why so much of that stuff's coming back. And Thundercats uh, hasn't quite been served in the same way as a lot of those other '80s franchises have, and I think I think there's definitely room for a, an updated but still true to the spirit uh, version of that. You know, they they had the newer cartoon. It's probably been a decade now. uh, Oh right! That that I felt took the mythology and did a really good job of of updating it. But I think a a feature film would just be phenomenal to see. I'd love to see that.
1: Well, there was some controversy recently about um, this show coming out called Thundercats Roar. Yes, yes, network. And they're making the characters sort of buffoons and they got these people working on it that are sorta of buffoons too. <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of the Thunderkids fans got really upset about it and I looked on YouTube and there was this little trailer that they put up and there were a lot more thumbs down than there were thumbs up. I think it was like three thousand thumbs up and like I don't know, 30,000 thumbs down. So maybe the show's never going to be on air. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that does seem... It seems like it's been a while since that was first announced, and I haven't seen any more movement on it. But who knows (laughs) with these things. Uh, Yeah. So in your years of uh, having access to these archives and of studying this production company and, and doing what you've been doing, have you come across anything or have you discovered projects or, or, projects you already were familiar with that you've ended up loving even more that you've found out things about that gave you even more fondness for specific things or, or certain, uh, films or features or specials?
1: Well, um, I'm always finding puppets that survived, um, whether it be in someone's collection or, um, you know, someone just put it up for sale, and a friend purchased. And I've appeared with uh, some of the puppets at various conventions. I do Chiller Theater in New Jersey and um, Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Con and things like that. So I'm always doing appearances and actually getting to see some of the puppets in person. So I always enjoy that. Um, but the thing about Rankin Bass, you know, I've been doing this for more than thirty years now, right out of college, and um, there's a magic um, to the specials too. You know, I can look at, in you know, the art- artists that design the shows, and Maury Laws and Jules Bass writing the music, and, and, and the designer and the writer, and you can look at all the things that. Put the shows together, but then you can watch them like Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which is the book I wrote last year, and uh, just watch that special and think, "Oh my God, there, there's just such a quality to it that even when you break it down, there's a magic to it, and it's it's hard to describe that magical feel." Um, And it's hard to recapture it, too. You know, know, there's these big companies now, like Warner Brothers and Disney and so on and so forth. And, you know, they're constantly remaking things. But I don't think you can remake the Rankin-Bass specials because there's this magic element to it that no one seems to know what it is, you know? um it's it's hard to describe it could be and just you you could run a thirty second clip and hear the score and the voice and the writing and it's it's just so charming that you can't repeat it you can't replicate it <laughs> and that's what I find the most interesting about the rank and best shows is you know I can describe every part and everybody who took part in making the show but i can't describe how they captured that magic and that's that's really something unique that very few animation studios or entertainment studios have been able to do look at all the christmas specials that have been made over the years you know there's the, that prep and landing from disney there's you know, all kinds of, you know, Spongebob Christmas and, and so on and so forth. But I don't think anything has even come close to Santa Claus is coming to town and the little drummer boy. Except for a Charlie Brown Christmas and how the Grinch stole Christmas. That's exactly
0: what I was getting ready to say is I think those are the only two that feel as essential.
1: Right right and and isn't that strange that they're all from the mid 60s
0: yeah and, and nothing
1: and, since?
0: and that i think every generation would sort of agree with that like i don't think anybody is going to argue that shrek's magical christmas or whatever <laughs> is is <laughs> as relevant and noteworthy as any of those specials there, yeah there, well it's not
1: it comes down to the writing of course the writing is at the core of it you know romeo really knew what he was doing and and as he explained where santa came from and frosty and so forth he worked in all these characters that are just so endearing and he he had an art uh, to his writing that that no one else did but you know, it's it's just this magic that that um, you can't explain it. You know, it's just, it's right, and you know it's right, and it's, and it's going to resonate for years and years and years, you know. I think people will still be looking at Rudolph and Frosty and all Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, another 50 years from now, and... Um, and still love it as much as they do and and that's why I get so many emails and so many book orders at Christmas time is people know this is special, you know people know there's something special about this, and they want to learn more about it, and they want to contact me and that and that's always fun too
0: <laughs> and you're you're absolutely right there is that there it is it's an undefinable that's how we started this was was with that undefinable quality and specialness about those uh those productions uh before we wrap it up do you have any one piece of uh production material or script or art or something that you've dug up over the years that sort of delighted you more than anything else? Like one particular thing that you just found and were like, wow, I can't believe I'm looking at this right now.
1: Well, Arthur Rankin and I were very close. Um, he treated me like one of his kids. And, um, when he passed away in 2014, in January of 2014, the weekend that he died, In Bermuda, um, I was contacted by all the news outlets, you know, Variety and the New York Times and and things like that. And uh, it was a little hard to take everything in. But that same weekend, my business partner Wes and I found Arthur Rankin's original scrapbook that he kept when he made. The New Adventures of Pinocchio in 1960. Oh wow! It turned it turned up in Japan, and uh, a Japanese guy. I don't know how we heard from him or how we found it, um, but he had it for sale, and we bought it. And when we got it, it was all behind the scenes pictures and clippings that Arthur kept with Arthur's original business card and we made a book out of it, um, called the Arthur Rankin Jr. Scrapbook, uh, The Birth of Anna Magic, and we sell them at miserbros.com, uh, M-I-S-E-R-B-R-O-S.com, but I have that original Japanese, um, scrapbook, and it's like, it's a treasure trove of history, you know, it's it's the very beginnings of Rankin Bass. They were known as Videocraft International at the time. And Arthur was the CEO and president. He didn't bring Jules in till later. Uh, Jules was a friend of his. So Arthur Rankin really started this company from scratch. And I went to Bermuda for his memorial in July of 2014 and spoke at his memorial in fact Ross Perot was at the table right in front of me he was one of Arthur's friends in Bermuda and Michael Douglas and his mother and Catherine Zeta-Jones were good friends of Arthur Rankin's too but they weren't at the memorial I don't think they could make it for some reason but it really, um, really brought everything into focus for me because you know like I said, I've been doing this for about 30 years and I never met a lot of the friends that he had in Bermuda. And in fact, there was a guy there who lent him $30,000 to finish Pinocchio. And if he didn't lend them the money and if he didn't finish Pinocchio, there never would have been a Rudolph. Uh, so these were things I learned, um, you know, talking to Arthur's friends through his life, and um, you know, there's a lot of meaning to uh, to his life, and um, I just like to shine the light on all the great people that made these specials because they're the reason that they lasted fifty, fifty five years. Um, there was a lot of talent and a lot of. Quality to the people that Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass chose to work on these shows.
0: Well, Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for devoting your time to sharing the magic uh, that these people made with the world. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything that you've done over the years in keeping this legacy going and sharing it with people. Uh, before we wrap this up where can we find you online and uh, well we already know you're going to be at dragon con in just a couple of weeks
1: <laughs> yeah the the nice thing about dragon con i've been trying to do the show for a few years now um i have a good friend derek yaniger who oh yeah yeah uh, designs a lot of the posters and banners and so forth so i finally get to meet him and see his booth and Does the the Jack Davis Foundation still set up there? I I know they did. I
0: believe they're still there every year, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Yeah, and Jack Davis was such a dear friend of mine. I have a lot of his original art. In fact, I have his very last painting that he did before he had his stroke. Um, He did a painting of Arthur Rankin with Frankenstein. Um, oh, that wow. I put in the Arthur Rankin scrapbook, so um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, those two booths there and, and doing the panels and um, and I know the Rudolph puppet show um, always sells out at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Yes, Is that right. Yes,
0: that's correct. Uh, which uh, we are truly blessed to have that here in Atlanta.
1: And uh, the guy who used to um, work there, uh, I think his name was Alan Lewis, um, he came to Arthur Rankin's night at the Museum of Television and Radio in New York that I was at. And uh, that ultimately led to us lending Rudolph and Santa to the museum one Christmas uh, some years back. And a lot of people remember seeing the puppets there. Um, that'll probably see me at, at Dragon Con. And um, and I'll have a lot of rare stuff, too, at my booth, including the 1964 version of Rudolph with the commercials oh, wow. on DVD. And I'll have a lot of rare uh, DVDs and, and CDs from the Rankin-Bass archives with my books. And I also have a daily blog at Enchanted World of um, that I put up a lot of rare photos and, and articles and things too. So really looking forward to doing DragonCon finally and and bringing all this cool stuff that I'll have and, and doing those panels as well. So I guess we'll see you there
0: absolutely uh rick thank you so much and for the listeners you know you can go into the dragon con app you can look up rick goldschmidt and you can find out everything that he's going to be doing uh over the four days of awesomeness at DragonCon. gosh four i just said four days it's five days now it's crazy (laughs) rick thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you did too, and I can't wait to see Rick at DragonCon and see what he's going to bring, not just to his table, but to his live panels as well. Uh, thats he, He's a huge get for the puppetry track. It's very exciting, and, and what a unique guest for them to have. Uh, speaking of unique... You have the unique opportunity to catch the world premiere of the documentary film, Troublemaker, starring me, directed by the Emmy Award-winning Jason Wilson, 10 p.m. Saturday night at DragonCon. The Troublemaker world premiere is happening. We have a limited number of 11 by 17 world premiere poster prints and we have a limited number get ready this is exciting this is exciting if you know DragonCon you know that people love badge ribbons and ladies and gentlemen phantomaniacs all over the world uh, specifically phantomaniacs that will be at DragonCon we have a limited number of troublemaker badge ribbons to give away give away at this world premiere so If you show up early, if you're among the first people through the door for the Troublemaker World Premiere, you will get a limited edition Troublemaker movie poster print and a limited edition Troublemaker movie badge ribbon to proudly wear on your Dragon Con badge the rest of the weekend and to keep and cherish forever and ever I'm super excited to have these things. I, I love giving stuff away. And the fact that this is stuff that our heart, soul, and blood went into it makes it all the more special. So come out for that. Stay tuned. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vic's employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.